Welcome to the Well-Nurtured Brain, where we delve into the exciting world of brain health. Every episode, we bring the latest research and expert insights on mental and neurological health and offer practical tips and strategies on how to nurture your brain and optimize its function. From mental wellness to neurological health, we'll cover it all so you can become skilled in the care and feeding of the most important organ in your body, the one that makes you you, your brain. Welcome to episode 15 of the Well-Nurtured Brain. I'm your host, Dr. Pamela Hutchison, naturopathic physician with over 20 years of experience supporting folks with neurological and mental health concerns live healthy lives. Really excited to introduce you to our guest today. We are talking about mental and neurological health in women in their perimenopausal and menopausal years with Dr. Jordan Robertson. Dr. Jordan Robertson is a naturopathic physician who has been making a splash in the world of naturopathic medicine and the world of women's health in general because she's a really great communicator in all things all things health, but particularly in the field of women's health. She is on a mission to better educate women and people with ovaries on the impact of their hormones on their bodies and brains and to equip them with the tools and strategies and solutions to take care of themselves during the hormone transitions that people face over 40. Jordan is the owner of The Confident Clinician, which is a practitioner support database. I'm a member of this group and it has elevated my own approach to care and practice. And I encourage you, if you're a clinician out there, to take a look at it. And in this interview today, we explore how the brain and mind is affected by menopause and the perimenopause transition. It's a really important time for brain health in women. And we talk about the importance of thinking broadly, not just about the hormonal aspects of this time of life, because that's not the only thing that's happening. It's also about aging in general. And it's about context, things like stressors a person can experience in their 40s and 50s and how that intersects with age-related and hormonal-related changes that are happening. We also get into the pros and cons of HRT and what the science is and is not showing us about how HRT may be helpful or not helpful in terms of brain health. It's a juicy bit that comes at the end. It is complicated this time of life. Often in the world of health communication, we see it oversimplified, which is a disservice to those who experience perimenopause and menopause. And today, Dr. Jordan and I are trying our best to provide you a service so that you can be wiser to the facts as we know it right now. We are both really humble knowing that what we think is going on may or may not be what science shows us is going on at this time of life down the road. But I know there's lots of helpful information in this interview, and I hope that it sparks a bunch of conversations and aha moments and more. I'm really delighted to share this one with you. Please enjoy. Well, I want to welcome Dr. Jordan Robertson to the Well-Nurtured Brain. Jordan is someone that I have an enormous amount of respect for, and I hope she knows that because she has been at the forefront of bringing evidence-informed practice to the naturopathic medical world. And she's been phenomenal at it. She is 15 years, is it 15 years in practice or are you even longer now? 15 years. It's, I think it's 15. I think that's the math. We might be rounding up just a, it could be a rounding. smidge. Yeah. <laughs> also has a university teaching position and is the owner of Confident Clinician, which is a practitioner support network and database. I'm a member of it, and it is brilliant and helpful support right in the moment when you're with patients. A brilliant resource that she's been at the helm of creating and is creating a whole task force of people who are now providing evidence-informed information to clinicians. It's a brilliant thing, and check it out when you get a chance. But Jordan is here today to talk to us about Brain Health in the Peri and Menopause Times of Life, which is a really important time of life for women and, and their brain health, and is also a time of life that she's particularly interested in supporting women in and has for many of those or all of those 15 years of clinical practice. 
Welcome, Jordan, to this podcast. Oh, thanks, Pam. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. So the first question that you're going to expect me to ask, because I think it's it's the classic question, is why are you interested in and what got you here to the point where you're doing some really impressive work in the world of women's health? Well, I come from the world of like critical appraisal and understanding good medical literature. That is my skill set, right? That's my, you know, sort of, that's what I bring to the table really is looking at research, figuring out what's true, figuring out who wasn't studied, what things we missed, how we need to interpret that literature and then take it to clinical practice. That's really my, you know, my skill set, which I think sometimes when I'm in that one-on-one interaction with patients maybe is getting a little lost, but that's actually my skill set, which is why I enjoy working with clinicians so deeply because I love having the the impact on the impactors who are going to then work with their patient base. But that means that I really narrowed my clinical practice down to the things that we have a lot of evidence for. So I wasn't comfortable being the integrative practitioner who offered a herb that was competing against an incredibly effective medication, right? That wasn't where I wanted to live in medicine. I didn't want to be a contrarian when it came to providing care. I wanted to provide the best care. And what that meant was I had to get really clear on which area of medicine an integrative approach was going to have a tremendous impact. And that ended up being in the world of, and my career really started was looking at things like fertility and miscarriage and PCOS and metabolic conditions in women and weight management. And then that transformed into being more interested in PMS, perimenopause, PMDD, and then menopause. And so, and probably some of that has to do with the fact that I'm getting older. And so as I've gone along, you know, and had to have a relationship with my own brain, I've really wanted to know what I was experiencing in my stage of life. But we truly have quite remarkable evidence for supporting cognitive health and women in those hormonal changes. And so I wanted to live there, right? We have the research on nutrition and exercise and mindfulness and stress reduction and all of those pieces. And that is beating out some of the medication options we have. That should be sitting across the table from conventional care. So I was very, very comfortable going to bat for my patients with solutions that should be chosen first. And that's probably why I got so interested in those aspects of women's health, because the evidence for it from an integrative approach is so strong. Yeah, I think that that's across the board. Like in my world where I work a lot with folks with neurological conditions, when you start to look at what is a big effect size and you start to look at, oh, lifestyle medicine, which seems like, or we put it as something that's really mild and ineffective. We don't think of it as this hugely effective thing. But when you start to look at the research and where things are going, how we live, what we eat, how we move, how we take care of ourselves, how we connect with other people, these things make outsize benefits to people if we can tailor them and make them a beneficial thing in their lives by getting them to basically to learn how to do it in a way that works well for their bodies works well for their minds. And so your passion and your interest and your scientific capacity all have essentially coalesced into a lifelong passion to support women. And as you said, you started in the world of PCOS and reproductive health. And as someone who is now aging, well, we're all aging at all times, but like aging, maybe a little more aggressively aging, (laughs) uh, you are you're now seeing personally, but also I've seen in your patients that when women age, they have challenges that come from the process of aging and their brain health. For me, like the other thing I was watching was that as these women were aging up into different life transitions, hormone transitions, I was also watching them tackle leadership in the positions they carry in their families, in their communities and at work. So although I have an absolute love of health and an absolute love of women's hormonal health, my first love might actually be in leadership, communication, 
that's actually my first love. And so when I was watching these women try and, you know, tackle mild things like the patriarchy in their workplace and then get sidelined by their hormonal symptoms, I was like, this is actually like, this has to be a public service that we help support women in this life transition so that they can embark on these leadership opportunities and not be sidelined during the most potentially prolific times of their career. So for me, it was like this marriage of like, mm -hmm. I want to see more feminine leadership. That can't happen if women don't feel good. And this is all intersecting at a time we want them to take the reins in their life. Mm, yeah, that's a really beautiful mission in a sense. Like you're looking at this from the perspective of as a healthcare provider, how can I help be part of the whole team that's pulling together to try to bring women to the forefront of leadership in their individual lives? That's really beautiful. And it is something that you hear a lot from patients in this stage of life. Women who are perimenopausal and menopausal will say things quite commonly like, I'm considering leaving my job because of the problems I'm having. They're considering changing their positions or early retirement. There's so many moments like this. There was a recent podcast that came out through CBC that was individual women talking about perimenopause and menopause and how deeply it impacted their ability to function in the world. So one of the things that I'm curious for, like when you describe your mission and you describe your practice, there's something that happens for women as they start to enter the perimenopause world that can show up first in mood changes or can show up as fatigue or show up as problems with their brain working? What's going on at that time in women's lives that's starting to create these symptoms that they quite frankly often report as quite scary? Yeah. So what happens there and during our pre-menopause phase of life, so this is where our reproductive capacity is quite high, you know, assuming that you don't have any other hormonal challenges. We had kind of casually mentioned PCOS there, and we'll come back to that one perhaps in a, in a bit. But assuming that all things are healthy from a reproductive standpoint, people with ovaries are going to ovulate approximately once per month. And that's, again, assuming they're not on birth control or what have you. And that monthly process is actually a beautifully orchestrated event that is communication between your brain and your ovaries to grow that follicle, to mature it, to release it, to grow and mature your uterine lining. For lots of people that have periods, they experience their period as maybe the few days of bleeding and maybe don't even talk about that very fondly. But your actual entire menstrual cycle is an approximately 28-day hormonal orchestra that is happening that is allowing each of those processes to happen. And what happens as we start to transition into perimenopause is that the communication between brain and ovaries starts to unravel a little bit because of aging and because we start to lose that reproductive capacity. So I think I've told this story a million times, but we're born with all of our eggs. If you're a female at birth, you're born with all of your eggs. And which my daughter knew and her health teacher did not know. And that's why one of my like, you know, funny stories is that she came home with her hands on her hips saying, you know, my teacher didn't know that my eggs have been in there the whole time, mummy. Um, but, <laughs> but we're born with all of our eggs, which means that, you know, our entire life, all of those potential follicles are in there with us, you know, come hell or high water, hell in our twenties, when maybe we don't treat our bodies, uh, as you know, carefully as we maybe do in our later decades, but those eggs do start to dwindle in number. They start to dwindle in quality as we move towards our forties. And so what was experienced as this beautifully orchestrated event, and, and that's, you know, lots of people do have hormonal symptoms that are apparent during healthy menstrual cycles too. So even if you have, you know, regular timed ovulation in your 30s, you might experience symptoms of PMS that are related to those hormone fluctuations, even though everything is functioning with the way it's supposed to. But as we move into our 40s, the connection between brain and ovary starts to unravel because they're having such an intimate conversation with each other about what each other are doing. As ovarian function starts to decline, brain hormones start to adjust. And now everybody's yelling and, you know, we're creating follicles at the wrong time of the month, or maybe we're not even releasing a follicle at all. 
And these changes actually will happen, these molecular changes are maybe happening five or 10 years before it ever shows up in someone's menstrual cycle. And I think this is partly why people with perimenopause struggle so much is because they don't get these outward red flags that things are changing, yet they don't feel exactly the way they did maybe three, five years earlier. And I think for as patients, that's like the toughest thing when you don't feel good and we can't find it, right? Like that's mm. that creates so much distrust in medicine. It creates so much blame on the patient's part. And yet these little changes of ovarian to brain communication are changing maybe five or 10 years before you'll ever skip a cycle. And those women who are experiencing that are living in a body where like they're living in the forest. They're not above the forest looking at what's happening in the whole ecosystem. They're living right in that forest. And so they'll see these changes really intimately. I remember one of my first episodes of brain fog that was related to menopause. I was terrified because I didn't actually know what was going on for a moment there because it happened fairly early. And that's someone with a lot of knowledge who in the real time experiencing the symptom thought, what the heck is this? What is this awful feeling? So when like when women can be getting these symptoms quite early, right? They can be getting them in their mid-30s. They can be getting them in their early 30s at times. And those early symptoms can be surprisingly challenging. We don't talk a lot about it. No, we don't. And you're right, because we're down in the trenches. And even when I was struggling with some pretty significant hormonal mood changes, my like male best friend colleague had to point it out to me to be like, do you know that you like legitimately hate me half the month and then you're fine? Like, do you think you have PMDD? And I was like, yeah. And I didn't know, like I didn't see it in myself until someone else pointed it out who was close to me. So if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I didn't even realize I was having these symptoms, like I didn't realize it either. (laughs) So I think it's hard because when we're down in it, and I think generally women have such high expectations of themselves They expect themselves to show up at their best every single day. And yet that's not how the female body is wired. We're wired for change every single day. That 28-day cycle is a hormonal, like I said, orchestra, or sometimes we can call it a mess, meaning that every single day your hormones are slightly different than the day before. Now, when we enter perimenopause, the challenge there is that the hormone production becomes more erratic. And so you get periods of maybe hormones made on top of hormones where perhaps you ovulate or release an egg close together, or you might start to have larger gaps between your ovulations, which means that hormone levels may actually fall into a, you know, maybe menopause-ish range. And what we now know, and we didn't know this a couple of years ago, is that most of the brain-based challenges that women face, especially mood-related challenges, is not whether your hormones are high or low. It's the fact that they fluctuate so much. Mm -hmm. So if we were, you know, this proverbial hormonal groundhog day, like men are, we wouldn't perhaps experience such significant mood symptoms. But the change in estrogen and progesterone uh, happening rapidly is partly what primes our brain to struggle with stress, to feel overwhelmed, to maybe not be able to access every positive emotion and be overwhelmed by negative emotions, that's partly happening because of fluctuating hormones. And so when we enter that phase of perimenopause and hormone production, it now starts to become less scheduled and more erratic. The mood symptoms start to show up. But again, this may precede a skipped period. And so women will often blame themselves or blame their circumstances for the way that they feel versus recognizing that there is a biological transition that's happening. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of the routine question whenever I'm working with someone with depression or with with any kind of mood disorder, anxiety disorder, who's in a certain age group in their reproductive years, I'll always ask like, what happens before your period? Or what's the frequency of these events? Because they often don't realize that, oh, it happens once a month or it happens twice a month. And you go, well, when is that? <laughs> and through the conversation, they'll have these moments of, oh, I might be ovulating when that happens, or I might, that might happen around my period every time. And some women are right on top of that and they know it. And the ones that don't, it always feels like a big win to be able to say, look, I think we've understood something today. Even just knowing that actually improves their symptoms, which is exactly. one of the which is something I find so fascinating. And really that speaks to what we're coming to understand around self-compassion. If we teach 
the menstruating person about their symptoms, they feel better. If we teach their partner about their menstrual symptoms, they feel better. Like the person with the symptoms who's struggling with their mood feels better if their partner understands their experience. And if we train patients around self-compassion, their physical symptoms get better, like their hot flashes. So we're definitely seeing this trend around body awareness and what happens if we hold some space for these transitions and what it looks like for people that are even just understood or feel heard, which is partly why I'm so interested in that sort of like public outreach and education aspect is that we can actually improve someone's mood just by teaching them about their mood. This is fascinating. And when you think about it, there's so many times where the therapeutic experience is in the interaction with the clinician or in the community space. It's not always occurring within the, like, I take a pill space or <laughs> like, I take this herb space. Like, there's so many opportunities for that therapeutic intervention. And in women's health, in this instance, I think there's been so much emphasis on there's something wrong with your hormones. So there's all this focus on hormone and adjusting hormones or balancing hormones. And I do want to cycle back to this one thing you said that I think is so interesting because in the space that we operate in as naturopathic physicians, a lot of the discussion is about estrogen dominance. And when working with women with PMDD, one of the first things that usually has to be dismantled is this idea that they have too much estrogen that that's why they are having an enormous mood problem at the luteal phase. And instead to say, no, this is actually about sensitivity to vacillations in your hormones. So when you're communicating with patients, how do you get that message across? What is your way of approaching that discussion about estrogen dominance? Yeah. And I'm so glad that you brought that up. That's literally one of my favorite sort of myths to dispel is what is happening with the hormones in perimenopause. And it brings us back to, you know, the difference between causation and correlation, right? Or a causation, which is a very, very big, I'm going to call it an expensive word, right? Like rarely in science do we ever get to pull that baby out, right? And say, this causes this. Think about how long it took us for us to say smoking caused cancer. And that's not just because, you know, there were some special interest groups involved. It's because we don't throw that word around lightly in the scientific world because our bodies are complex and causation is so complex. And so there's that, right? But then there's also correlation, meaning that we find things in people who are having a similar experience. And what happens is when we run lab work on people in perimenopause, and if we remember what I said earlier, where hormone production is erratic and haphazard, ovulations can come closer together than they were supposed to, or perhaps farther apart than they were, you know, supposed to, in air quotes. What that means on blood work is that we're going to find haphazard results. We're going to find results that are starting to look different than your premenopausal blood work. That is not necessarily the cause of why you feel the way you feel. And yet in the wellness industry, especially, we've married those two. And we'll say, ah, your estrogen was 3,000. Oh, my goodness. It wasn't 3,000 when you were having regular periods. And so therefore, this number we've found is the cause of why you feel the way you feel, right? It would kind of be like saying that like ice cream causes sunburns. Right. Because, you know, every time you have an ice cream cone, you get a sunburn. Well, they're just they happen together on the same day. The ice cream cone is not giving you a sunburn. And so it's common in that sort of wellness space, especially when women are looking for hope and looking for answers. We're certainly going to be more susceptible to being I'm going to use the word victim to marketing and to things that really promise you this golden ticket to feeling better. But that high hormone of estrogen that we see in perimenopause is associated with what's happening in your body. It is not the cause of what is happening in your body. Aging is the cause. And high estrogen levels have not been correlated to the symptomology of perimenopause. So if we ran 100 women's blood work in perimenopause and saw all their random blood work, ovulation, we could not point to that and then go, oh, that person, she's bloated. That girl, she's got migraines, right? We cannot pinpoint your symptoms based on your lab work because they are not correlated. Your They're symptoms are caused by the experience. That's right. They're not causing the way you feel. So 
if we can separate those two things and say your blood work looks weird or different or changed because your body is changing, you don't feel well because your body's changing, but it has nothing to do with those like crude numbers that we've run on blood work. But I feel honestly like it's like my personal mission for us to get rid of this term estrogen dominance, because what that does is A, it makes the woman feel like she's done something wrong. B, it puts us down this massive spiral of women avoiding milk and plastics and things that we've decided, you know, contain estrogen. And I'm not always sure that that's the first thing we should be doing or the hundredth, but it's definitely not the first. And it also then makes women fearful of HRT because quite often, you know, if we're looking for best case scenario solutions for preventing depression for supporting those hot flashes or vasomotor symptoms, we're talking about estrogen. But if you've been told for the last decade you have too much, like it's hard for me to convince you to use it. And it's the very, very best treatment option. Mm-hmm. I mean, these discussions about like estrogen bad, progesterone good, have even had people radically changing their diet to avoid soy products, for instance, which is actually probably a good thing to be eating in life in general and fine for boys and men to eat and certainly fine for women to be eating so their entire lifespan. but we got really distracted by this idea that estrogen dominance is an issue. Estrogen is bad. Phytoestrogens are bad. Everything about that is bad. When it's the more sophisticated way and the more closer to the reality of what we think is going on, we need to be humble, of course, because we never fully know. But is that this vacillation, as you mentioned, what is happening to the brain in women when their estrogen is vacillating? What happens to the brain there? Yeah. And it's, I'm not going to pretend to be a super expert at this. And so for the super experts that are listening, we're going to stay pretty high level with it. But I mean, estrogen and progesterone both have receptors in the brain and progesterone, you know, some of the metabolites of progesterone, like allopregnanolone, alone also have interactions with parts of our brain that are associated with mood, like our GABA receptors and serotonin and parts of our brain that are associated with, say, like that executive function. The way I always explain it to patients, because it's a nice, easy way to explain it, is that all the things that women are good at, right, multitasking, et cetera, those areas of the brain are influenced by estrogen. And so when estrogen levels are starting to fall into menopause or are oscillating in perimenopause, women can feel some pressure on those areas of the brain. And that's probably why we see some brain fog or, you know, word finding, (laughs) Uh, ironic that I couldn't think of the word for a second there, Um, is why we maybe see some of those changes and definitely why we see some pressure being put on mood from like a depression perspective. But the part of why this is so complicated is that while that, you know, sort of molecular stuff is happening There are other pressures happening in the whole picture of the woman's health, like sleep, that also put a lot of pressure on mood, cognitive function, et cetera. So yes, if we tease out each individual thing, right, like estrogen in the brain, yep, putting pressure on mood and cognitive function, but also sleep, putting pressure on mood and cognitive function, and also fatigue, so hot flashes, independently putting pressure on mood and cognitive function. Like the Venn diagram of what's happening to the brain in perimenopause is really rich. And so even though we think that, you know, between the estrogen and progesterone release around ovulation, that they're kind of having this connected experience where progesterone is priming the brain a little bit to be more sensitive to those estrogen fluctuations. So progesterone is not the good guy completely. And then those two things happening together is kind of priming the brain to be sensitive to the fluctuations. And so when we get this luteal phase decline in estrogen, which does happen, estrogen doesn't stay sky high through that luteal phase, it does oscillate. And when that oscillation happens, that primed brain is really sensitive to that. And therefore we get the pressure of those mood symptoms. The kind of thankful part of the conversation is that most of the cognitive changes that happen in perimenopause and menopause are not permanent. Again, this is hard because this is also a phase of life where we may start to catch some early dementia or cognitive change in patients. But for the most part, those cognitive changes that happen, we do overcome them. So whether that's a rewiring, and there's some amazing authors that are publishing about this, 
you know, some rewiring that happens post-menopause or an adaptation that happens post-menopause. It's not all doom and gloom. <laughs> we do recover cognitively, but it's that decade of transition where the brain is so much more sensitive to those hormone changes. And that's probably partly why, you know, treatments that stabilize hormone levels a little bit like HRT or mm-hmm. even for some people, the birth control pill can alleviate some of those challenges for them because it stabilizes the hormone levels. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's also like you said a couple of things in there that I want to repeat just because they're really good to highlight. So this idea that this is not just a year or two. This is often a decade. This is a process and it evolves over time. I think that's an important one. Lots of folks are starting to get that. I think it's starting to get out into the world that women routinely go through hormonal events through their entire life. And this event now is starting to get some press and starting to get some some interest. And thankfully so, I think very much about women in the Middle Ages and so forth, where you know, they would have these events happen. And what on earth was the explanation for it back then? Like you had bad humors or something like we will blame. Psychosis, spirits. spirits. Yeah, spirits. Yeah, you were yeah. possessed. <laughs> oh, you were possessed. Yes. So I think we still have this tendency in our world. And I think this will continue for a long time. Hopefully it's getting faster in terms of its resolution, but that women are kind of expected to just, you know, just deal. And if you had something in the uh, male population that lasted for 10 years and that was this disruptive, we'd be researching the snot out of it and we would have lots of therapeutic interventions. And then, so as a female who's now I've gone through and am now officially menopausal and really appreciative of that, <laughs> really appreciative of that. I, on the other side, looking back, I think, wow, we just we really need a lot more communication about this. And it has huge impacts on mental health. And then this piece about the cognitive health. So women are really scared about their cognitive health because they're at a stage of life where they now see themselves as at risk for a cognitive impairment. And one of the questions that I often get, I'm hoping you can give us some guidance on that, is how long can you expect the cognitive problems to continue and maybe how you know they're getting better? Those are great questions. And this is an area that I'm excited for the next like like five years to be better developed because what I thought you were going to ask me is what about the HRT connection with cognitive decline, which is a messy, messy topic. And um, but it's a worth it's a worthwhile one to mention. Yeah, it's a worthwhile one to mention kind of in the same context because I don't know how long it takes for us to recover from a cognitive perspective, that truthfully. I would say in my clinical practice, we definitely see some improvement in women as they take those baby steps towards, you know, and it's a better overall care. And then solutions that are helping that Venn diagram, whether it's sleep or mood or hot flashes, et cetera, right? Because it's hard to talk about the cognitive in isolation from all of those other things that are happening The other piece that I think is so fascinating about cognitive health is just the impact of stress and allostatic load. And that other thing that's happening to women during this time is that they are really carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders, whether it's aging parents, aging children, aging careers. And what I mean by allostatic load is that your brain kind of has an idea of how much distress it's willing to tolerate based on how you feel and and your resources and and all the tools you have in your toolbox, both cognitive, like psychologically and like figuratively. And in that 40s and 50s, when women are at this peak stress for so many aspects of their life, and that intersects with those hormone changes, which do reduce your resiliency and make your set point lower. So you'll often hear women say things like, you know, I could have done this in my 30s or when I was in my 30s, I would, you know, do all this and have two part-time jobs. And it's not just about us being younger at that time. It's that our brains actually had a different capability of distress at that time. And when we start to have those hormone changes in perimenopause and then move into, into menopause, our resiliency also is affected by it. So I know this is a very long-winded way to say, don't worry, it'll get better. But as we start to help people work on their resiliency, their 
understand the impact that stress is having on their cognitive function. We start to like increase their tolerance to distress then their cognitive function also gets better. So does that start on day one that they start working on things? A little bit, (laughs) right? Like as soon as we start to move towards some self-compassion and improving those physical symptoms, et cetera, we can see improvement. But just by looking at what's happening like chemically in the brain, I actually don't know what we should expect. I think when we are talking to women about their concerns about cognitive health, you know, A, we want to expand that assessment just beyond the like, I can't find my keys, where women, if they can't find their keys, and especially if they have a family member with Alzheimer's, they feel doomed, right? That like, this is it, this here's the sign. That assessment for cognitive change needs to be more thorough than you just forgetting where your keys are. And also it needs to be ongoing. And so if we have some concerns and worries, you know, right now, then let's also check in and see where things feel in six months. And it's that story over time that really helps us better understand someone's cognitive changes, not just how you feel on this one particular day. So I know I said a lot there. I don't know how helpful that was. (laughs) It's incredibly helpful. So, and there's a piece, I want to pull out this one seed of hope that was woven through everything you just said there, which was you're describing that change happens over time. It is contingent upon not just your biological reality, but the reality around you and how you manage that. You're more sensitive to it because of your hormonal changes. So you're more primed to feel more stressed. But that you're also seeing in there is that this changes over time. So lots of things change over time. So you're saying you can, you have levers within that to facilitate those changes, but also the brain is going to change because it's neuroplastic over time. So the panic button doesn't need to be hit that this is the new normal. When you're in the midst of brain fog, of peri or postmenopausal time period, lots of hot flashes, sleep problems, this isn't permanent. You're saying there's tools and you're also saying that we know the brain rewires and changes over time. That's important. Yes. And, yeah. And also it sounds like having a clinician It's a bit of an argument for what you and I do in terms of naturopathic physicians, because having a clinician that takes the full extent of your life into consideration and helping guide you through managing the whole and getting you to the right additional resources that you might need, that's a really important part of good care, I think, in the perimenopausal menopausal time period. That intersection between being heard and also being taught so I find that really interesting about what you're talking about, because it's not just, we'll give you a pill. We're going to help you understand why, and we're going to show you how some of these things that are happening in your life are influencing why your cognition isn't quite what it used to be. Yeah. And it's interesting, like that whole education assessment piece is, this is not the only spot that it shows up in women's health, that if we just ask women how they are and talk to them a little bit about their experience, they feel better right? We see that in the postpartum depression research. We see it in other aspects of women's health that if we literally ask you questions, listen to what you say, and then help you contextualize some of it, normalize some of it, give you an understanding of what to expect and what not to expect, that alone improves how people feel if we check in with them three or six months later. Even listening to this podcast in theory has the potential to make you feel better. And why is that, right? Is that because we start to develop some self-compassion and you don't feel like your, you know, your body's not betraying you? I always read like some of those hormone books. I love reading the titles of those hormone books, right? It's like, you know, freeing yourself from hormone hell. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means, right? Like we like hormones. We like them to be there. Hormone hell is having zero hormones. So let's not, uh, you know, villainize them when they're around. But just by talking about that with people improves the way they feel. And maybe it's because when you have that self-compassion or you start to like hear, oh, you know what? My six-hour sleep regime really isn't serving me, right? Or, you know, maybe I will just, you know, skip that glass of wine on Fridays. Like you probably make some micro changes to your life that also helps you feel better when we acknowledge that it is a complex system that's affecting you. So many women are dieting even in their 40s and 50s, which, you know, the number one side effect is for dieting. 
like fatigue and moodiness. And so when you have a practitioner who's able to be like, whoa, 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 Sally, like back up, let's see all the things that are impacting the way you feel right now. It can really help you contextualize what you are capable of taking on from a distress perspective. Dieting is also distressing, right? Where you need to, what lever, I like your word, what lever do we need to pull to have the greatest impact? It's not cutting out soy milk. And then also helping you see that forest for the trees so you know what to expect over time and when to get checked over time. I think that's how we build a really effective solution for people in perimenopause. Yeah. And I think that that's a hard thing to do, like to be sympathetic to our general practitioner colleagues. Like you don't do that in 10 minutes. That is not just, it would be too much to ask of them and it's not fair. So one of the things, though, that I want to cycle back to, because I know people are going to be wanting to hear your thoughts on this, is the piece about HRT and brain health. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of different signals out there, especially when you go into social media that say really terrifying things about HRT and then really sort of over glossy things, too, about HRT. And I think hormone replacement therapy as a tool can be an incredibly valuable tool when used well and calibrated well to the person. I think what it does in terms of brain health over time would be an interesting thing to hear from you. So tell me what you think about it, first of all. What what do you think in terms of brain health? You're right. Like It's funny because I think the major organizations that are supporting people in menopause have held a relatively steady opinion, it's not even, well, I don't even know if I should use the word opinion because it's well-rooted in research, guideline, right? So the general menopause societies have held a steady guideline about how we feel about the impact of HRT on mood and on cognition for quite some time. It's the public that has oscillated the pendulum from one side to the other over the last couple of years where we weren't talking about HRT for cognition and then people wanted to use it as a prevention plan for Alzheimer's and then people were talking about it being damaging to the brain. So I think the guidelines are really quite clear about where it's having a positive impact. I am curious about the future, partly because I'm an APOE gene carrier, right? So I carry the early cognitive decline gene and there are whispers of what's happening there and the interaction with estrogen. So my bias is, is that I'd really love for that to be a thing so that I feel like there is a prevention strategy for myself in the future. But truly that's getting a little bit ahead. That's a bit biohacky at this point, using estrogen to prevent cognitive decline in APOE carriers there's whispers, but we're not there to say for sure, maybe by the time I'm 50, which would be awesome. But the things we know for sure, right? The things we know for sure is that when we use estrogen in people in the perimenopausal window, so who are still experiencing cycles, but qualify for that diagnostic criteria of perimenopause, meaning your cycles are changing by more than seven days than they used to. We know that giving estrogen to those people prevents new depression, And so if people are cycling and we intervene at that perimenopause phase of life, we are preventing new depression from happening in people as they make that menopause transition. And because we know that transition time is increasing our incidence of depression, anytime we can reduce the incidence of new depression in menopause is a positive thing. And giving estrogen in those perimenopausal years has been shown to do that. Why, right? That's the big question. Is it because we're supporting that person with their sleep and with their hot flashes? Is there a legitimate, you know, chemical change that's happening in the brain that's kind of yet to be teased out? But we do know that, that people that are treated before their last menstrual period do have less depression than people that aren't. Does it treat depression in the population? I was just about to say is where we don't or where we're missing solid information is giving it in people who've already transitioned through menopause but have depression, right? So if you are 53 and your last period is when you're 47 and you still have depression or you have depression, giving HRT to those people doesn't seem to reverse their mood symptoms. Giving it to people who are in perimenopause who have depression, that's one that is a bit questionable at this point. We do see studies that show improvement in mood when we give HRT to that population. We have some studies that don't show that improvement. 
my personal opinion is that it's, you know, probably the more complex your perimenopause symptoms are, the greater magnitude of benefit it's going to have on your mood, right? So for example, if you only have depression and don't have hot flashes, don't have difficulty sleeping, you just have depression, giving estrogen in that person is maybe not going to have the magnitude of effect we would have as if we gave it to someone who has a complex experience with their perimenopause and can't sleep, has horrific hot flashes and depression, right? Because now we're starting to solve more circles in that Venn diagram. Mm -hmm. But that's just my opinion, right? I'd love to see some research on that. But that's, in my opinion, I think the more circles we hit in the Venn diagram, the greater magnitude of benefit we may have in that patient population. We do see some literature talking about things like brain fog, et cetera, but what we haven't done a good job of is teasing it out between like more hours slept. You know, if we sleep more, do we have less brain fog? Probably. And so using HRT to prevent depression, we feel pretty good about. Using it to treat depression is a bit cloudier for sure. And once you're well past that last menstrual period and you still have depression, we probably can't reverse that with the use of HRT. Now, like I know that there's people listening to this that are like, but my depression got better when I started HRT. And that doesn't mean it can't, right? Again, when we look at the statistics and the population data on a whole, we can't, you know, give it this massive gold stamp of approval, but your individual experiences may vary. And for some people, again, if their insomnia is the literal crux for their mood disorder, then maybe right? So I wouldn't discount it completely. And I think this is where we get into the art of medicine, right? Because you are the statistics and you aren't the statistics at the same time. So, but the cognitive piece at this moment, the estrogen is not an approved prevention strategy for dementia or Alzheimer's, but there's that glimmer that patients who have the APOE gene mutation, which I have, may respond differently to estrogen in their brain as they transition through menopause. And it may be offering a slight cognitive benefit in those patients who are those gene carriers. But what we don't have is good longitudinal data to say that it prevents, you know, any kind of cognitive decline. So you really would be off-label using it for that particular, uh, you know, we don't do it, right? We're not giving HRT to prevent dementia even though we're starting to see those little whispers of maybe some connections. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that there was some data, and I'm pulling from back in the recesses of my mind, some data around if you start HRT later in life, that it might actually have some harmful impacts on cognition. Can you speak to that? Am I, am you're I right. hallucinating? Okay, yeah. No, you're not hallucinating. You're right. And again, like that critical window or window of opportunity is a term that we talk about in the HRT world because we adapt, right? So in a low estrogen environment, a lot of things in our body will adapt to a low estrogen environment. Breast tissue does, brain tissue does, and even our cardiovascular system has started to shift as we enter a low estrogen environment. And this is why we see some reduction in cardiovascular risk in patients who use HRT, because rather than them bottoming out and having zero hormones, we maintain a low steady state of hormones, and that has some cardiovascular protection effect. When people have had zero hormones for 10 years, a lot of things have changed, right? Their bones have changed, their cardiovascular system has changed for the negative. And when we add HRT to those patients at a later date, and this is why if you're 10 years past your last menstrual cycle, we're typically not putting you on hormone therapy because your cardiovascular system has changed enough that it's actually now risky for you to add that in as a therapy. You have developed enough plaque, enough changes in your cholesterol, enough, you know, those microvascular changes in the 10 years that you didn't have any estrogen that when we add estrogen back in, that it actually increases your risk of cardiovascular disease, heart attack, and stroke, because now your cardiovascular system is more at risk than it was when you were still having a menstrual cycle. And the reason I'm talking about this so in depth is because the cognitive function, and, and even when we look at some of the like cardiovascular influences on cognition, this is probably why we see some of those negative changes and more risk when we treat patients at a later date is that that low hormone environment for 10 years has changed their body enough that when we put hormones back in, it is not a, you know, get out of jail free card. We're actually treating a much different body and 
the risks are not exactly the same. And for cognitive health and cardiovascular health, the risks are actually now increased when we add back in HRT after a long period of absence of hormones. When we get folks in, like I have folks who come in who are really fearful of Alzheimer's dementia because their mom had it or their dad had it, whether or not they know their APOE4 gene status aside, how do you talk to those folks and help them understand how HRT is and is not a tool? It sounds like to an extent you can say, well, there's maybe there's some, but if that's their primary reason for wanting to do HRT, what's the discussion that you might reach for? What's the discussion you might have? Yeah, I mean, I think everything is about talking about, you know, likelihood ratios and relative risk. And that's what we're thinking, right? When we prescribe something to a patient, you know, we're we're doing this kind of mental gymnastics to decide whether the benefits outweigh the risks and thinking about whether or not our patient is similar enough to those patients who've been studied that we kind of expect them to have the same result. We want to think about the likelihood of side effects and if that particular patient, if those are tolerable things, right, that we will just accept side effects. I think often in the natural wellness space, we forget a lot of these conversations because we view a lot of our interventions as harmless. And we'll hear, you know, even people say, well, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt to do that. There's always a cost, right? There's always a cost to doing a treatment. Sometimes it's financial. Sometimes it's, you know, a health cost or a side effect. Sometimes it's about the compliance and like there's a costly adherence that has to happen for us to actually execute a, a treatment plan. There's always a cost, right? Even if the treatment is eat more cucumbers, there is a cost to that. Mm-hmm. And so we try and lay out that conversation with patients so that they can see that not everything is unharmful, right? And if the magnitude of benefit is you know, a 0.0002%, I guess that's up to the patient to decide if that is an important number or not. But they also have to remember that, especially for a prescription, that the practitioner is also owning the responsibility of that risk and benefit. And so we, actually, I had a, I have a podcast queued up called Licensed to Disappoint. And (laughs) it's actually about, (laughs) it's actually about this conversation because especially as HRT and menopause hits the limelight, we've had patients leave our office who say, well, if you won't prescribe HRT for me, even though on paper it's risky, I'll find someone else. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, what our job as, as physicians is to help you understand the relative risks and relative benefits. But, you know, we also carry a lot of responsibility when we prescribe something with respect to owning some of that for you and helping you make that most well-educated decision. And so when patients want to do HRT for the sole reason of cognitive function, and there is zero other reason for me to prescribe it, I can't really justify why we're doing it. Especially if they're not doing the other 10 things that are incredibly well-researched for supporting cognitive function, like the mind diet, right? Or some of the other pieces that we have that like on paper, absolutely blow HRT out of the water as far as magnitude of effect. We're probably not doing that. We're probably not sleeping or exercising to the extent that we get cognitive benefits. So why we're reaching for a drug that has not been proven is beyond me for that particular indication. And I'm one of the people that might, you know, stand to benefit the most if we're looking at where the research is going with this. But if I had zero other symptoms, I'm not sure I can justify taking a drug every day for that. Yeah. And I think we are primed, or at least patients in Western world are primed to put a huge emphasis on on the drug. The drug is therapeutic. The drug is the thing that I have to do. And if I do it every day, I'll be okay. It's just not how it works. But the other piece, I find a good clinician does not have their blinders on. A good clinician is thinking about the whole aspect of this person's health for them. It's not patients' jobs in a sense. Like a patient has challenges, they bring them. And then our job as clinicians is to say, okay, here is the range of options. We need to not be blinded and say, well, we know, and this is data that's true, we know that smoking reduces your risk of Parkinson's disease, so you should take up smoking. We would never say that to a patient. Like we would never, ever say that to a patient because we know all the other risks they would take on. And that's really what you're saying in 
it's such a great answer that we have a responsibility as clinicians to ensure that the patient's aware of all those things. And sometimes we have the responsibility to say, you know what, this really isn't safe. There's no indication. And we've got things that are really safe, really effective. And yes, they take a little bit of effort to do, but you're going to get so many more benefits from that if you do those things. I think that's a really good you know, take-home message on HRT is that it can be helpful, but let's not forget all of these other things that are important. And I think HRT can be almost like a ladder, like a step in the ladder towards doing those other things because now you're sleeping better or now your your hot flashes aren't interrupting you every 20 minutes. So you have a bit more brain space to be like, okay, I can go to the gym now or I can plan my meals for the week. Yeah. <laughs> and I will, I just want to call out one special interest group that I do think needs to be just talked about completely separately. And those are like young women who have iatrogenic menopause or menopause from surgery or chemotherapy or who transition through like very early ovarian failure. That group actually does have more cognitive benefits from HRT. They are a whole separate gang. And unfortunately, they often do get lumped into the big rah-rah conversation around menopause and HRT and, and their experience is a little bit more... Um, glossed over. They're not treated as uniquely as they perhaps should be. But early menopause, for whatever reason, whether it's surgical or genetic or what have you, those women do benefit cognitively from the addition of HRT. So that's just that one differentiation I want to make. But when we get into that older population, and it's funny, I've chatted about this with our clinicians too, because sometimes it feels like we have this like nice, shiny object of HRT that we can use the number of conditions that should be assessed when patients are struggling with cognitive changes in their 40s. I mean, we're talking diabetes, right? Just standalone depression that's unrelated to hormone change, those thyroid conditions, you know, high blood pressure, ADHD, sleep apnea, right? Like the list goes on of all the things, all the boxes that need to be checked, uh, dieting before we would solely blame hormones as the cause of cognitive change. And if you've done a really thorough assessment with your patient, my guess is you're going to find one or two of those areas that are just at least putting pressure on their cognitive function in addition to perimenopause. And so reaching for the unproven HRT option when, you know, we actually desire to treat our patients as these complex beings, like we got to start over here first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a really great place for us to wrap up, which is on this. I mean, we're both naturopathic physicians. We both are really big fans of considering the whole person and being patient-centered in our approach to care. Essentially, we were ending in this beautiful space for at least for two naturopathic physicians talking around the idea that, yes, important tools to keep them all on the table, but also let's, of course, remember that we have a whole human being and, and a whole life going on. Jordan, thank you so much for coming on. I think you know I am a huge fan of yours. And I'm so appreciative of you spending some time with me today to talk about this. I hope someday we can get you back again. And if people want to know more about how to get involved with particularly the confident clinician group that I'm a member of and I can say has really improved my practice, how can they reach out? Yeah, for clinicians, the best place to get connected is probably through our public-facing uh, website, which is www.confidentclinicianclub.com. And that's where you can access some of our free resources. We have a clinician-facing podcast that focuses on evidence and clinical pearls, as well as our wait list, because we don't onboard members all the time. So that would be where to go for that. And then I do engage on Instagram. I feel like that's a great place to connect and get to know someone's body of work. And so for members of the public and clinicians, you can connect with me at Dr. Jordan MD on Instagram, which is Dr. Jordan MD. That's where I will share updates of upcoming events and publications and things where you can kind of connect on a deeper level. I also have two great golden retrievers and love coffee memes. And so that's where <laughs> all of that content is. And so please go Important there. Content. <laughs> Critical Very content. content. Critical. <laughs> <laughs> and you do a podcast, Women's Health Unplugged. And mm -hmm. um, I've noticed that I think you're on a little bit of a hiatus right now. Is that coming back? Are we going to be? We're coming back. Yeah. We really? uh, 
It's been it's been such a neat journey. That podcast, we have almost a half a million downloads over our last couple of years, which is really wild. And we often sit in that sort of top 20 medical podcasts in uh, Canada, which I'm super proud of. So yes, we will be returning from our hiatus. We actually had done like 230 episodes straight before I needed somebody else to tap me on the shoulder and be like, do you think you need a break? <laughs> and so we took a much needed break. We're having a bit of a regroup, but we will be back fall 2023. And so that's also a great place to subscribe and connect. Oh, yeah. Tons of great information on your podcast and really never a wasted moment to hop on and listen to, to Jordan on Women Health Health Plug. All right. Thank you so much. And thanks for everything you do in this world. You are making a difference and it's it's really important for folks like you to hear that, I think. So thank you so much. Thank you. Want to give a big thank you to Dr. Jordan Robertson for taking an hour out of her life to chat with me about brain health in women in their perimenopause and menopausal years. I'm going to give you a brief overview just to help you solidify what we just talked about. So essentially, one of the questions we wanted to answer was, you know, what's going on in the brain during this time and in the body of women who are in perimenopause? And one of the myths that we talk about that needs to be dismantled is this idea that women are experiencing estrogen dominance, where they have too much estrogen or it's not properly opposed. And in the last few years, it's become clear that it's much more complicated than that and that what's going on isn't so much about the amounts of estrogen or the amounts of progesterone, but it's about fluctuation in hormone levels in the brain and how this primes our brain to struggle with managing our day-to-day stressors. And it also creates these symptoms, these vasomotor symptoms, these challenges that women know all about when they're in that time period of life. I love how Dr. Jordan talked about the importance of self-compassion. I think self-compassion is one of these tools that we can benefit from almost invariably. We can benefit from being kinder to ourselves, but highlighting that women in this stage of life will benefit from the simple act of self-compassion because it has been shown in studies to improve mood and improve hot flashes just by being kinder to yourself. And part of being kinder to yourself is listening to a podcast like this and realizing, oh, I'm not alone. There's lots of other women that experience this and that it's okay and there's things that I can do about it. And I really like that piece of what we discussed. And then also that When we're talking about this time of life and how it's affecting our brains, we have to keep in mind that it's not just the hormone changes that are going on, but it's the stress of this time of life and aging itself and what that represents. And it's also about lifestyle and how lifestyle factors and all of these other things come together and impact our cognitive health at this time. And then we wrapped up with a great discussion about HRT. And the main points I want you to think about is one that there is some evidence to show that if we start folks on HRT before their last menstrual period, that it may prevent major depressive disorder in that person. But it is unclear if it treats major depressive disorder in these folks who are already in the perimenopausal period, already experiencing depression, already experiencing depression in their postmenopausal years. It's not necessarily going to be effective. There's not clear information that that actually treats depression. But as Jordan said, the more that we help with the perimenopause and menopausal symptoms, we might impact moods simply because a person's sleeping better and not having to manage hot flashes and maybe less fatigued. So sometimes we we get that as a, almost like a side benefit of treating those other symptoms. And then if someone is well past their last menstrual period and still has major depressive disorder, it is not likely that adding HRT in at that point is going to actually treat the major depressive disorder. When we talk about cognitive health, it's really unclear right now if starting estrogen or HRT is impactful for cognitive health. At least one thing we can say right now is it does not appear to be wise to consider Adding HRT as the sole approach to try and decrease your risks of cognitive impairment over time. There may be some info coming about people who have the APOE4 genotype that might 
be updating that information to say that it could be helpful, but we don't have that data right now. And one final thing was that if you are in the population or women that are in the population where they've had early ovarian failure or have had to have surgical uh, menopause, so removal of ovaries before they've gone through a natural menopause, there does seem to be a huge cognitive benefit for those folks to start HRT after their surgeries. I hope that you got some really helpful information from this huge topic. I do invite you, if you are really interested, to go over to Women's Health Unplugged and listen to the enormous amount of back info and follow her forward in time when she gets rolling again in the fall. I have learned so much from Dr. Jordan Robertson and will continue to do so, I know, far into the future. Thank you so much again, Dr. Robertson, for being with us. Thank you, listeners, for being with us today. I'll see you in two weeks. In the meantime, please be kind to your mind. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Well-Nurtured Brain. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe and share this podcast. Spread the word about brain health to your friends and family. They'll thank you. The content of this podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice, nor should it be considered as such. If something discussed today seems applicable to you, please seek the assistance of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. Thanks again for listening. 